1: The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. I want to discuss the subject of confidence with a man who has written a book called How Confidence Works, the new science of self-belief where some people learn it and others don't. And I'm thinking about the word confidence and the commodity that is confidence and how some people have very confident And some people are not and how confidence changes i think with situation as in put me in a certain set of circumstances and i'm as confident as the day is long put me in another and the confidence is gone out the top of my head i have no idea where to start so it's confidence a, a thing that I can develop and learn? Is it, is it something that my body develops neurologically or neuroscientific? What is it? Let's talk about it with Professor Ian Robertson, uh, who is uh, a neuroscientist and uh, mind expert and all these, and you've written this book. Professor Robertson, good morning. Start with that. Good morning. What is confidence? Is it a commodity? Is it a real thing you can bottle, or what is it?
0: Well, that's a great question. Let me say, first of all, what it's not. It's not self-esteem. Self-esteem is an evaluation of yourself, of your ego. <clears throat> and it's not optimism, which is a belief that things will turn out well. Um, confidence is a belief that you can do something. Uh, so it's, it's the, the critical thing about confidence is it's linked to action. And so confidence is domain-specific. So you can be confident in sport, but not in social relationships, for instance. You can be yeah. confident academically. So it's not a kind of general purpose quality you have. It's something that's linked to specific categories of action. Now, in terms of what it is, it's actually a whole set of habits and beliefs and um, uh, that, that we learn. There may be certain... Um, inherited differences and how likely we are to be confident, but an awful lot of it's to do with learning. Um, And the the, the critical secret sauce of of confidence is this. Um, If you believe you can do something, that's the first half of the confidence bridge, can do. And then if you believe that if you do that, then the outcome you want will happen, that's the can happen. If you have these two strands to the bridge, your brain responds to that predicted successful outcome as if you'd actually done it so yeah. your brain gives a little tick box of success and when your brain does that it generates important activity in a, in a part of the brain called the reward network mm-hmm. deep in the middle of the brain which is d- dopamine fueled it's the it's the same network that's hijacked by compulsive gambling by drugs wow. um, uh, it's, a, it's, it's a critical part of, the, of, of the, uh, uh, the things that make us get up in the morning and do stuff. The, this and incredible the, thing cons- that sits
1: inside our skull, this incredible yeah. machine yeah. that sits in there, creating yeah. millions and millions of chemical and electrical reactions every day of our lives. It creates this confidence.
0: Yes. So, it, 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 so when we believe we can do something, so the thought is incredibly important. The belief is central to this. The, the belief, I can do that. I can start taking exercise. That's the can, can ha- that I can do. I believe if I do that, I can lose weight and become healthier. That's the can happen. Once you have these two beliefs in place, your brain um, increases its dopamine activity in this reward network, which lifts your mood. It's a mini antidepressant. It lowers your anxiety. So you're not getting the kind of anxiety that can disrupt your ability to perform. And most importantly of all, it increases your motivation. So you're more likely to do the thing Mm. that you believe you can do. And then when you do it, and you're successful, you get the double whammy. Yeah. So that's the critical thing about confidence is it's linked to action, it makes it more likely that you will do stuff and then get repeated success experiences. And of course, the greatest source of success is past success, and the greatest source of confidence is success. Yeah,
1: and it grows itself. And once once you're... Yes. You mentioned yeah. it being situation critical, which I think that was probably a much better way to express what I was trying to express. In it put me... Ian into a certain set of circumstances, and I'll just yeah. say, "Okay, bring it on. Let's do this. Take me into the next room, into another set of circumstances, and I want to leave."
0: Yeah, how's the exactly. wh- what's going on there? Well, um, when <laughs> when we're doing something that. Um, well, can maybe can I give you an example from golf on that? Can I do can yes, I do that? Yes, golf is a uh, great example. i have got time to tell you that. You're speaking so to an Haring-
1: absolutely lousy golfer, so so, you know.
0: Yeah, well I don't play golf at all, but it's a great source of of, of examples. Sure. So Porig Harrington was on the cusp of the 17th hole um the cusp of winning the British Open in Carnoustie. I think it was 2007 or 8, I can't remember which. And um, he was absolutely in the flow, he was leading the Pack and he could, he said, I was just kind of anticipating the Claret Jug. I could see this culmination of my career, and he said something came into my head at the top of the swing, and as, as I teed off in the 17th hole, and I hit the ball and it went into the Barry Burn, into the river. He so said he composed himself quite well, w- went up, took a second stroke, back into the river. And he describes complete sense of humiliation, embarrassment, thinking, God, this is me finished. This is terrible in front of millions of people. All my hopes are anticipated victory has gone. A complete sense of failure. Now, you might think there, right, his confidence was shot. Except he had a very, very smart caddy, Ronan Flood. And Ronan, as they walked up to take the second penalty shot, just said to him this. You are the best chipper and putter in the world you are the best chipper and putter in the world. You are the best chipper and putter in the world. Like a robot, like a hypnotist. And uh, Harrington said, if I'd had my club in my hand, I would have hit him with it. He was so annoyed. By this, by this, <laughs> I by the time. think
1: I've heard yeah. Pellage telling this story.
0: Yeah. And by the time they, the time they reached the, the penalty shot, he chipped beautifully and putted beautifully. Now That's not the end of the story. So later that night, after all, because he went on to win the playoff and beat Sergio Garcia and win the the, the, the Claret Jug. Hours later, after all the celebrations and the press interviews and everything, they finally meet again, Flood and Pat Harrington, and they're in the limo going back to the hotel. Harrington turns to Flood and says, you know, Ronan, you saved my bacon out there. When I hit that second shot into the river, I didn't think I had a chance. And he saw that Flood was laughing. He said, why are you laughing? And Flood said, I didn't think you had a chance either. So <laughs> what what Flood was showing was he was just saying the words. He was going through, he was faking it, <laughs> but creating a state of confidence about a very limited set of actions, that is chipping and putting. Right. So you ask me, what's going on when you go into a different room where you don't don't have the confidence at all? That's because of your attention, what your attention is on. What Flood did was essentially hack into the software of Harrington's brain and get him only thinking about chipping and putting, mm-hmm. not about big victory or big failure. All he's, 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 so, he, so his mind was only full of thoughts and past memories they were associated with success because he was one of the best chippers and putters in the world. Yeah. And so in his mind for these critical moments of taking the next shot, there were no big thoughts and no frightening thoughts because he, he had controlled his attention using language with the help of Ronan flood. So, and because of that, he created a state, he changed the state of his brain so that, Um, His brain functions were not disrupted by the anxiety or the excitement that goes with big success or big failure. His His attention was just on the next few seconds of that stroke. And his memory systems were... Comforting them with past memories of just that, and that's what happens to you, uh, PJ, when you go into the the room where you, you're doing the thing that you've done lots of times before. Your memory and your attention systems have switched on in such a way to provide you with memories and thoughts and ways of uh, and perceptions of the world that create this state of confidence. <laughs> and so, but you go into the next room, you don't have such memories, you don't have such past experiences. Your attention is all over the place, looking for signs of criticism or disapproval or failure, and that disrupts your brain function.
1: So what I'm thinking you're suggesting to me, Professor, is that when I go into that room and I just want to leave, I don't have a choice, I have to stay, are you saying to me that I should look for something within those circumstances that I know I am good at and start there? Exactly.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Can I give you another example? Yes, please Can do. give you another example from my own past? So... I do a lot of speaking at academic and other conferences and I don't really get anxious unless it's a completely new topic I'm doing but when I first embarked in my academic life I was really anxious but the first time I presented my PhD work to an audience of eminent um, scholars from you know around the world and I I was terrified and um, not unsure about the you know the, the 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 quality of the work that I was presenting because it was the first time I presented it, and I remember there was one prominent, very famous uh, neuroscientist sitting in the front row, and I noticed she was frowning as I spoke. My attention could not escape from that woman. I focused on her the entire time of my talk, and the more. I focused on her the more I thought, oh my goodness, this is rubbish I'm presenting. She thinks I'm an idiot. This is no good, my career. And of course, so it sent me into a spiral of anxiety. So I ended up giving a very poor presentation, you know, muffing my lines, getting mixed up because I had too much anxiety and it was interfering with my brain function. What I didn't know then and what I would know if I was doing the same now is that what that's a classic part of the confidence sapping anxiety cycle? That it biases your attention to look if, you, if, you're, if you're lacking confidence, your brain is looking for signs of threat, anticipating punishment. So my, my, my eyes ignored all the other people in the room who were looking moderately interested yeah. or at least not frowning. But I fed my brain with anxiety by the way the attention was zooming in on that person. So that when you say, yes, in your room, what you do is first of all, you, you feed you you consciously try and feed your brain positive um, evidence of, of, of positive events, not negative ones, not of criticism. Focus on the person who's smiling at you, not on the person who's frowning at you. Yeah. Um and the other thing to say about that situation is um do the stuff In spite of feeling anxious, one of the great sources of confidence is mastering adversity, is doing the stuff in spite of these negative feelings. And that, if you get through, if you just make yourself do the thing in spite of feeling anxious, that will give you a sense of mastery, of control over the anxiety.
1: Feel the fear and do it anyway.
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And the more you do that, the more you can do it. One of the great, one of the great, problems with people who are chronically anxious and this happens across the world is they do less stuff of all sorts of stuff why because anxiety is part of our brain's avoidance system it is designed to keep us out of danger and so if we're in an anxious frame of mind we tend to pull back We, we we do less Socially, work-wise, uh, hobbies, everything. We anxious people do less stuff because their their brains in a state of avoidance, yeah. uh, anticipation, and so if you can just one of the ways of breaking that is to is to realize that you are not your anxiety. Your anxiety is a set of rather amorphous s- s- symptoms in your 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 body. That actually could be excitement or could be so, anger. So they only the, become anxiety because of the label you're putting on them.
1: The very way to tackle your anxiety is to start doing the things your anxiety is telling you you can't.
0: Precisely. Now, I'll just say one caveat to that. Yeah. <laughs> you're fright- supposing you're very anxious about public speaking. You don't then go and book to speak to 300 people <laughs> as, <laughs> no. as a first step. Start with the tiny thing. To, this is, there's, a lot, of, there's so a lot you of eating, to, yeah.
1: sorry, sorry, Ian, there's a lot of eating elephants yeah. going on here. One bite at a time.
0: <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. You have to set, the critical thing about confidence is setting goals for yourself that stretch you a bit but they're not too difficult. There's a sweet spot for goals like Goldilocks. Not too difficult and not too easy. Just that stretch you a little bit. And one person's and it's individual, it's nothing to do with other people. Your goal might be just to make it out of the house round the corner for a three-minute walk. That's fine. If that goal stretches you a little bit. That's what you need to do. Good. And then you gradually build up your goals in that way towards eating the elephant.
1: It's, it's very much an individual thing. I want to focus, if I could, for a moment to, to, or two yeah. on, on children, uh, Professor, because a lot of my listeners yeah. would be the parents of, of young children. And yeah. I think we're trying yeah. to teach children to be confident in a world that is slowly going crazy. How do we do that? It yeah. has maybe gone crazy. How do we do that?
0: Well, I mean most of the world is not crazy and the thing is we get our attention is obviously focused on the terrible things that are happening but most in most of the world these terrible things are not happening so you have to be careful not to feed your brain too much with the the the, the bad things you have to try and achieve a balance. Um, so for children, you have to you know you have to explain there have been bad there have been wars in the past, there have been threats, but human beings have the incredible ability a to adapt, b to recover. And see to solve problems. That's what confidence does. As collective confidence, humanity has been incredible. We have lengthened our lives threefold in the course of hundred years. We have, and not just in the rich countries, also in the poorer countries, we have extended lives. We're an amazing species. What we've achieved, and we can continue to achieve that. So we mustn't. We must have confidence collectively that we can embrace these problems in spite of these setbacks. But the second thing I would say about children is 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 to make them understand that um, the link between action and, and not to uh, between action and confidence and not to be helicopter parents not to not to sh- overshield them not to overorganize them to allow them the experience of doing stuff themselves mm-hmm. so for example uh, for example people who kids who have a, a saturday job end up more emotionally robust than kids who have never had a Saturday job. Kids who have kids who have completely ad- adversity free young lives and, and adolescents. The golden boys and girls who have never had anything going wrong for them in the family, financially, academically, sporting, just the golden boys and girls. And then they enter the workplace in early adulthood and they are more emotionally vulnerable than the kids and adolescents who have had some moderate degree of adversity to cope with. Why? Because moderate adversity is a form of psychological vaccination that teaches you that, yes, there are times when you feel anxious and you feel down and you feel defeated, but these pass. These are not you. They don't define you. If you've never had that experience and you enter young adulthood, The first time things go haywire in your job or someone criticizes you or you fail, you can think, oh my God, maybe I'm not the golden boy or girl that I thought I was. And and that that makes you very vulnerable emotionally. So if you,
1: as a parent, don't let your children, for want of a better expression, fall on their arse now and again, you're actually not teaching them properly for living life.
0: No one. One of the great things um, for children, you know, for particularly in adolescence, is rubbing up against the, you know, the the the, the roughness of life. Particularly kids who maybe don't have any roughness at home, with a, you know, like doing a Saturday job or or, or a part time job in the summer or something like that, just getting. Getting a, you know, there'll be, there'll be people who, you know, people, if kids are coming from a very privileged background, you know, they might rub up against people who resent them. They might, they might experience interactions that they didn't, haven't experienced in school. That is really good for them. And and so the the other thing is if you know if kids are obviously bullying is a terrible terrible thing um, and but you, 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 bullying happens in all schools uh, and all kids experiencing it sometime the important thing is to is to, is is to teach kids to be confident about not catastrophizing about the bullying not withdrawing but but uh, understanding it and and having the confidence to. If they're being bullied by one group, to move to a different group, and not yeah. not to internalise uh, these uh, feelings and uh, of 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 and to start feeling there's something wrong with them, because yeah. one of the great sources of lack of confidence is what we call the great psychologist Carl Dweck is, is is fixed theories about your abilities. I am, you know, my intelligence is fixed by genetically or by by upbringing or my personality or my emotions are are are. are controlled by factors outside of my control, like my genetics or my inheritance. That's a very, very vulnerable belief, and it's a wrong belief Mm because none of our qualities are are determined completely genetically, but like that. But if the trouble is then, if you believe that your intellect is something you've been endowed with, even if you've been told you're really smart as a kid, and then the first exam you fail, that's a huge threat to your ego, and you you don't learn from the failure. Mm. Whereas a kid who realizes that their, their abilities are partly, okay, maybe partly inherited, but they're also an awful lot to do with effort and luck and teaching, they, they, they learn from failure much better than the kids who have this big fixed th- theory. And the same is true for emotional uh, emotional functioning. So, for instance, kids... Kids, teenagers who have a fixed theory about their personalities who think, well, this is who I am. This is what I am. I was born this way. And then they get rejected by a group in school. They're much more likely to say, oh, that just proves that I'm not. Mm-hmm. And they withdraw and, and their isolation becomes worse. Whereas the kids who have a, a more accurate theory about themselves, to say, look, yeah, okay, I'm, I, partly I've inherited these tendencies, but also it's a matter of who you interact with, the decisions you make, what you choose. They're much more, li- more likely to say, with they're expelled from a group, ah, that was a they were a horrible bunch, I'll try and find another one, they're, they're, they'll take they're, more action.
1: They're last, they're, they're lost. Yeah. Professor, I, yeah. I, I sense we may speak again, because I could stay here all day if I had the time listening to you, you know, we, I, I sense yeah. we may speak again. But briefly, before I let you go, Creative Brain Week, next week, what yes.
0: is so creative brain, we, um, this is the Global Brain Health Institute at Trinity College in Dublin with its partners in University of California, San Francisco. We believe that the, the brain is, is one, the greatest source of our health and our well-being and our economy. And we believe that cre- the creati- ability to be creative is a critical capacity for Ireland and for the world and for solving the problems. So we are celebrating the interface between creativity neuroscience, health, inequity, Economies and Technologies, it's a celebration of the brain and the brain's capacity to dream up new ideas that we can then act on. And it's everything from creativity in babies to creativity in old age and creativity in industry. I really I recommend, if you, if you go on to search for Creative Brain Week, you'll find that it is online for five days as well as in person Fantastic. in Trinity College, Dublin.
1: Fabulous. Listen, it's been a pleasure to speak with you. As I say, I I sense we may speak again because I could spend the day here. Uh, Professor Ian Robertson, psychologist, neuroscientist, and author of the book called How Confidence Works, The New Science of Self-Belief, Why Some People Learn It and Others Don't. Thank you for being with us on The Opinion Line, Professor Robertson. Courts 96FM